door before this place ever existed. That just tells you how ancient I am. And um, it is just a pleasure to see many of you that I've known for years here again. One of the things we do in the wintertime very often is go to Myrtle Beach. You'll forgive us for that, but we have done that for a number of years. And as we go to Myrtle Beach, we usually go to the same church down there. And uh, it is a church that is facilitated in a building that used to be where all the great gospel singers came to sing. So uh, the Gaithers, Statlin brothers, uh, Gatlin brothers, and all of those kind of ancient people from the past all went through there and sang. So in later years, uh, they sold this building, this church bought it. And so One of the things you have to understand is that it has marvelous lighting in it. So they just have everything in terms of uh, lights happening on Sunday morning. But one of the things that I've gotten kind of used to is that uh, as the uh, worship team leads and all of that happens, all kinds of different lighting happens, but then it all goes black as can be. You can't see a single thing. And that's when you know the pastor is coming out. And you always wonder, so how's he going to greet us today? What's he going to do as he comes out of the blackness? And he has done everything imaginable. So sometimes you see him standing away up at a stepladder or running a chainsaw or dear knows what kind of thing he might greet you with. But last year when we were there, I looked and I looked. The lights were coming back on. Out of the darkness, there's no pastor. And then my eyes adjusted, and there he was coming down from the ceiling, upside down. Comes down very slowly, talks to us all the way down. I thought if that was me, I'd be out of it by now. But anyway, he did that, finally got to his feet, and began to talk about how upside down the world is. Well, that was about as appropriate as it gets because we do live in a very upside-down world, and everybody is aware of that day in and day out. So uh, you can't read the newspapers without recognizing that we're broken. Mankind is broken. Everything is a mess. It is upside-down. However, one of the outcomes of all of that that is really disturbing and sad and gripping and, uh, and makes me very pensive at times and prayerful is simply the fact that a lot of the time the church is upside down as well. It isn't just the world out there that's uh, kind of crazy and got things all messed up, but uh, oftentimes we have as well. And I would like us to kind of focus on that over the next three weeks, and uh, I trust that we'll see some direction and help out of all of that. Last Sunday morning, I was in Jerusalem, and uh, I sat pondering this for a moment. It was our final day. We were just wrapping up a wonderful tour, and uh, I'm thinking about all of the places that we have been And so I'm reciting in my head, wasn't it fun to go along the Mediterranean? Wasn't it fabulous around the uh, Sea of Galilee and to be out on the Sea of Galilee and all of that kind of thing? 
And then uh, going down to the Dead Sea, that was too much fun. Going on to the Red Sea and uh, dipping our toe in the water there and looking around at the wilderness territory. It is fabulous to see. And then back to Jerusalem. And you begin to recite in your mind all of the things that we saw We saw uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, Mount Zion, the city of David, the Western Wall, the Via Della Rosa, all of the normal things that people go to see. But I realized that none of that was really what it's all about. None of it. I needed to sit at Golgotha And think about the crucifixion of Christ. And then to sit quietly in the garden tomb. And just hear those words again. He is not here. He's risen. Just as he said. What I'm saying to you is that. Oftentimes we simply lose our focus. There are all kinds of things that blur our vision. We are busy with life. And as a consequence of that, we forget what we are really here for and the things that really matter. So as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he told them that the thing that was of most importance was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The church needs to remember that. We need to get our focus back. It is very healing. So When Jesus was instructing his disciples before he went away, he told them in what we call the Great Commission that their job now is to spread the good news. Their job is to be his witnesses. Their job is to make disciples as they're going around the world. They need to make disciples. The good news has to be told. And as I reflect on that, I think that we sometimes need our hearts drawn back to that focal point, and we also need to see how it began to happen in the early church. And that will inspire us and encourage us, maybe redirect us and help us. So that's what I am hoping for today. I think that the whole thing began to develop In three stages, it happened as God directed it in three distinct stages. So I want to I want to focus your attention for just a moment on a promise that was made to the disciples. You are very familiar with John chapter fourteen. You know that Jesus had told uh, his disciples that he was going away. Alarm bells go off all over the place. He's going to leave us. How's that all going to shake out? And that was very, very troubling. And so he made a promise to them. And uh, in a word, uh, I think I could put it all together this way. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And a little later down, he says, we will come to you. What is that all about? 
Well, it's to assuage their fear. They are afraid of being left alone, and he doesn't want them to be fearful about all of that. They need somebody with them, but they need somebody who is able to help them. So his very clear promise is this. I'm going to send another who basically the implication of the text is who will be just like me. Another one who can help you. Another one who can guide you. Uh, We often have people with us in lives, uh, in life. Mothers uh, have this experience all of the time. They carry maybe a baby or a toddler or a two-year-old along with them. And uh, that person is present, but not very helpful. If they're in need of anything, the baby isn't going to answer their needs. So what the disciples need is somebody who will be with them. That's wonderful. But somebody who can really meet their needs. So that's the promise that the the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come someday. And he would be present with them. In fact, he would indwell them. In fact, he would be with them forever. And then he makes this further statement, we will be with you. Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself for sure. He's talking also about the Father. And so here's a little theological thing you need to make sure you get in your heads now, and it is this. God isn't divvied up into parts. You don't get a piece of them. When he comes to you, he comes in his entirety. So the promise, as he spoke about the Holy Spirit coming, was that the Holy Spirit would really make present in their lives the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Emmanuel has come. God with us. How good is that? That's just as good as it gets. God with us. So that was the promise. And most of us know that ultimately that happened. And so when we come to Acts chapter 2, we see this all falling together. Very, very interesting. But I want us to just rehearse for a second some of what we already know if we're Christians at all. And that is at our spiritual birth, certain things happened. So, for example, I was born from above, is what God's Word tells us. I was born of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God came to dwell in me. He was the one who made this new birth happen in my life. I'm also told that I was baptized in the Spirit at that time. What does baptism do? It identifies us with something. What did the baptism of the Spirit identify us with? It identified us with the body of Christ, so that suddenly I'm not a lone individual. I have been connected by the Spirit through the new birth to all others in the family of God. I'm now part of a collective group, the church, the family. Some people become Christians and they don't want any part of the church. Well, uh, sadly, Uh, You can't have it that way. You are really part of the church. Whether you ever attend one or not doesn't matter. Uh, I shouldn't say that. It does matter. But, (laughs) But that isn't the issue. We are baptized uh, by the Spirit. Uh, 
And uh, we know that a whole lot of other things uh, happened at our birth as well. So we were given the earnest of the Spirit. We're guaranteed for all eternity the benefits and blessings of the Spirit. We're sealed by the Spirit so that we have the mark of God upon us. If we're His, we're His, we're identified as His, we have that mark on us. All kinds of things happen at our new birth. After our new birth, there are a number of things that are now options for us. And it would be fun to talk all morning about those kind of things. But now we have the benefit, the blessing, the opportunity of walking by means of the Spirit. So I'm not left alone. I have the enablement of the Spirit for my walk. I am able to have wisdom from God by means of the Spirit. I have uh, uh, the opportunity to sing and worship by means of the Spirit and all kinds of other benefits that come. But let me take you back now for a second to that moment when the Spirit came. And in order to do that, I want you to really get a handle on what Acts 1.8 says. And then we're going to just pursue all of that a little bit more. So Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's not just coming to be present. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, you've heard this often, but let me say it real fast again. There were two enormous problems that now face these people who have heard this great commission. You are going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. And here's what I am expecting from you. So you're going to be my witnesses here in the city of Jerusalem. City of Jerusalem is where they just crucified Christ. That was an unfavorable place to go. That's not where any disciple of Christ would want to go on an adventure right then and there. But I want you there as my witnesses in Jerusalem. I also want you to go to Judea. Uh, nobody loves you much in Judea either. That's the place where Judas Iscariot came from and other characters like that. And, and they will love you a lot in uh, Judea, but want you to go there. And I want you to be my witnesses in Samaria. Nobody in Samaria likes you Jews, so just go and have a good time. It's a, it's a great place to share the good news because they need it so badly there. And then I want you to go to all the rest of the world, the Gentile world. Uh, Gentiles don't like you Jews either. They find you too aggressive, too in their face. They just don't care for you. And I uh, have word back that you don't like Gentiles either. You think they're unclean. You don't think they're uh, kosher. And so uh, I just want you to go there and be my witnesses and tell them the good news. That's the story. In other words, your job is very simple. Just take this good news to the globe. Simple as that. Well, it isn't simple when you think about it. And so there's two humongous problems here in the text. So the first one 
isn't simply that it's unfavorable territory. It is simply that I don't even know the languages of those places. There is no way in the world that I could go and tell them the good news. I'm a fisherman from Galilee, for goodness sakes. I can hardly speak my own language properly, let alone anybody else's. So there is no way that I can take the gospel, the good news, to the rest of the world. But besides that, Lord, did you notice how many of us there are? There's like 11 or 12 of us. And you want us to cover the globe? Are you crazy? Like it's impossible. We could spend our, the rest of our lives in Jerusalem and, uh, and never get the job really done. So we don't speak the language. We don't have the manpower. That's the bottom line. Impossible task. So let's now watch what happens in Acts chapter 2. Let me read this to you. Acts 2.4 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. There's actually 120 that the uh, disciples have gathered around them. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. And the first thing that people began to say is, they're drunk. They're weird. This is nuts. And, uh, and so what I like next is Peter stood up and said, let me explain this to you. Well, you better explain it because none of it makes sense. So Peter starts to explain. And here's what he says. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Way back, Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit. And now, Peter is saying, the explanation is simple. Now, the, the one that you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and he has poured out the answer to his promise. The Holy Spirit has come. And so, what now happens? The answer, of course, has come to this little, weak, pitiful, deluded group who are followers of Jesus but hardly know why. They have no clue about what the future holds. Here is this little pitiful group, and they are suddenly changed by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit of God has come upon them. And so the very first thing that happens is they're enabled to speak languages that they never learned. Most of these guys barely got out of kindergarten, I think. They... Uh, really didn't have a university education. They didn't have a high school. I don't think most of them had a day school. So here they are, suddenly able to speak languages that they have never learned. And if you notice the uh, nationalities that are there for Pentecost celebrating in Jerusalem, 
you will realize that there are people from all over the globe. And God has brought them together and now enabled them to hear the good news in their own language. This is an incredible thing. So what I'm wanting you to see this morning is that the first movement of God to uh, let go the good news into the world is to send his spirit so that there is the power, there is the enablement, there is the ability to make all of this happen. And so for this unique occasion, he has blessed this handful of people with the ability to speak other languages so that suddenly people are hearing Italian and everything under the sun all around the city. And so, what is the result? The one great obstacle has been overcome by the Spirit. These people didn't speak the languages, so they can't go to the world. But now... God has brought the world to them and he has made it possible for the world to hear the good news in their own languages. What else happens? Peter, Peter, big foot in the mouth guy, stands up now and he doesn't just explain that the Holy Spirit has come. He now begins to preach. He's the guy that it seems only a eeny weeny bit of time ago has been standing at a fire denying that he knows Jesus. He doesn't want anybody to identify him as a disciple of Christ. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's a weak, no spine kind of a guy. And now He is standing up boldly before a huge crowd of people. And he is declaring with power the good news of Christ. And there is this fabulous, fabulous response. So that, here's the second issue answered. How are a little handful of people going to carry this good news? Suddenly there isn't a little handful of people anymore. There's 3,000 new believers that very day. And so, again, the one problem has been answered. The second problem has been answered. The Spirit of God is the one who now is unleashing the good news and letting it go to the four corners of the globe. What a fantastic thing is happening here. I hope that somehow... This begins to encourage us so that we get our focus and say, so is it still happening the way that it should? One of the things, one of the options that the Spirit has given to us is explained to us in Ephesians chapter 5, and it is simply that we can still be being filled with the Spirit. We can. So that His power can come upon us, and we really can speak the good news to those around us. But are we focused on that? Do we understand that as our goal? That is a huge question. Let me kind of summarize this a little bit and say, the good news then is released by the coming of the Spirit. It is released 
by the power of the Spirit. It is released by the gift of languages being given by the Spirit. It is given by the conversion of many at that point by the Spirit. It's unleashed by Christians still being filled by the Spirit. In other words, the focal point of the Christian church still needs to be that the good news is told. I wonder, I wonder if we're getting that. I sat thinking this morning, we had the great privilege of coming here last night and staying overnight next door, you see, so we didn't have to drive very far this morning. So I had time to think this morning, which is kind of rare, but I uh, managed to do that once in a while. So I'm sitting thinking, through the years of my life and ministry, I have seen the church, churches generally, all across the country, upside down, lost their focus, confused, fighting, squabbling, struggling along, barely managing to maintain anything at all. And I was thinking, so what is it that has done that to us? What are the issues that have got us all confused? When I was a, when I was a young guy, I think that the first issue that I had to face as a, as a fellow growing up in a very conservative kind of family was the issue of dress. You are supposed to be all dressed up to go to church. You don't go to church any other way. And uh, through the years, I heard lots of people quibbling and squabbling over that kind of thing. Must you wear a tie? Must you have a suit jacket? All of that. Goodness sakes. How much energy we lost on that kind of stupidity. I wonder if you ever heard that there were Questions about music through the years. Oh, dear, dear, dear. I grew up wondering if music was right at all in the church. Should the church even sing? There was uh, uh, the Martin Luther, the old saying was that the devil always lands in the choir loft. And uh, so way back there were struggles over music. Well, on through the years... Should we have somebody up here waving their arms and leading the singing? Or should we have a worship team? Should we have more than one instrument? Would that be legal? I mean, my goodness. And so people exerted tons of energy on trying to sort out this whole big question that had nothing to do biblically at all. It had to do with personal preferences mostly and it just drained energy away. You wouldn't believe how many discussions I've been in through the years on how communion should be done. Oh my, oh my. Uh, is it right to have individual cups like that? Is it all right to uh, cut the bread? Shouldn't it be broken? And uh, all those kind of things that we have exerted energy on. And then there was the question of baptism. Like... Uh, how should baptism really be done? Do you baptize people backwards or forwards? Should you, uh, should you bury them three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Or is once good enough? 
Do they even need to get all wet? All those kind of questions have exhausted the church through the years. I wonder if you ever heard about the charismatic movement coming to town. My, oh my, what great energy was uh, taken up on sorting through that. And whether it is uh, legitimate to uh, have fellowship even with charismatic people who think different than we do. Church governments, styles of preaching. Should the church be sensitive to seekers or should we really just pound them over the head with the good news? All that kind of thing has taken lots and lots of time. I've uh, gone to churches where they have still no offering and think that taking an offering is wrong. There's a box out there by the door that's good enough. So learn to just give quietly and nobody will notice it kind of thing. I wonder if you've ever heard about doctrinal issues that come up like Calvinism versus Arminianism. We don't even want to talk about that. But there are the hyper-Calvinists and the mild Calvinists and the not-quite-Calvinists and all kinds of that kind of thing that people have fought over and fought over all through the years. Out of that grows discussions about eternal security. In our area, when, um, when the gospel began to really penetrate the Mennonite community, the Mennonites, of course, did not believe in eternal security. So there was uh, a church that began to preach eternal security, and they were hated and despised by the Mennonite people. They were just plain wrong. And so those kind of bad feelings are still there today. All of that and absolutely missing the focus of what the church is supposed to be about. We have struggled even in our days with people who are teaching what I call replacement theology. So they are saying that Israel no longer really exists in the mind of God. Israel has become the church. The church has replaced Israel. Therefore, there's no future for Israel. Well, guess what? That enters into all kinds of other discussions about eschatology that would bore you to death if I began talking about them. But uh, there are tons of them about is there really going to be a literal millennium and, uh, and when, is the, uh, when is the rapture really going to happen and what kind of judgment is going to follow and on and on and on. The differences are beyond description. And therefore, we say again, is that what we should be spending our energy on? Let me say something very, very serious, and it is this. All of those things that I have mentioned are not to be thrown out the window. Everybody needs to think critically about what the Word of God really teaches. But we must not let those things so occupy us that we are failing to do what God has called us to do. And it seems to me that whenever, whenever churches have gone through difficult times, the road has been rocky, things have been turned a little bit upside down, whatever we need to do, one of the main things is, 
We've got to get our focus back. What has God called us to do, really? That becomes the absolutely central issue. So, I am delighted that he has given us a focus point. He has given us a job to do. And we need to get that in sight again. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we, when we arrived in Jerusalem, um, we had supper together in the hotel. And then I said to the group that we are really close to the Jaffa Gate. I would like to take you, if you want to go for a little walk after supper, I want to take you to the Jaffa Gate, just so you'll know where it is. Then you can walk there on your own at other times. And so we set off. And uh, after two or three blocks of wandering down this street in Jerusalem, I'm beginning to say, I hope I can find the Jaffa Gate. That'd really be helpful. I got all these people behind me and... Uh, let me see. Is it there? Well, finally, finally, as I turned the corner, oh, what a relief. There is the Jaffa Gate. Do you know, it is such a relief when we get our goal in sight, in view. We really know what God has called the church to do. And it isn't lost in the fuzziness. It comes back to us clear and plain. There it is. And we're walking in the door, if you like, and we're beginning to function the way that God wants us to function. So that's my, that's my great prayer for Auburn, that today and in the next couple of weeks, we can see how God began to make all of this work and therefore to see how it should still work today. Let's begin with, in our heads, I have the presence, the power of God. He has called me to this task, and he has given the enablement to do it by his Spirit. And so with his help this week, we will simply be his ambassadors, his representatives in our little world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the delight of knowing your presence. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you have called us to a specific task, and we know that you have given us the enablement to do it. And so we are here today praying that you will encourage and, uh, and bless the hearts of all of your people today. In Jesus' name. Amen.